welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 14, New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. As listeners who have been with us for the last several episodes know, we've been working on a series that addresses Christian apologetics. We called the series Truth and Proof. This series was inspired by Dr. Greg Alexander, who has been teaching Sunday school for more than 25 years. Several years ago, Dr. Alexander developed a very similar series for his class. When we learned about it, we were so impressed we wanted everyone to have access to the wonderful work Dr. Alexander had done. And Dr. Alexander has been kind enough to join us on a few of our episodes during the series. But today, we are joined by another special guest. Today on the show, we have Doug Apple, who is the manager of Wave 94 radio station in Tallahassee, Florida. Doug is an extremely faithful student of the Bible, and he has thought deeply about his faith. Doug, would you like to take a couple of minutes and tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, what can I tell you about myself that maybe people don't already know? One thing is I have 14 grandchildren. Yes, number 14 was just born. And they're all 10 years old and under. So you can imagine when we all get together at the house, it's a little crazy. In fact, I gave them a nickname. I call them the Grand Mob. And I even made a logo for them that looks like the Godfather logo. So it's somewhat ominous, but I call them the Grand Mob because you get 14 children 10 years old and under together. It's a mob. Wow. 14 grandchildren? That's such a blessing. And I'm sure one of the reasons Doug has been so blessed is because of his love for and dedication to God's Word. Doug is so serious about his love of Scripture that he has taken upon himself to memorize entire books of the Bible, including several from the New Testament. So it is particularly appropriate for us to have Doug here today because today on Anchored by Truth, we are going to tackle one of the most important topics about the truth of Christianity, the reliability of the New Testament documents. The New Testament is the part of the Bible that tells us about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And, of course, we get the very title of our faith from Jesus. Jesus was the Christ. The term Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one or the chosen one. This is the same term as Messiah, which came from the ancient Hebrew word Mashiach. So Christianity is essentially a belief in the work and person of Christ. And while that sounds very simple to say, it's actually a truth so profound, we'll spend all eternity understanding it more thoroughly. But we certainly began our understanding of that truth by reading the New Testament documents. 
As such, knowing that the New Testament is reliable and true is a fundamental part of demonstrating that the God that logic tells us must exist is, in fact, the God of the Bible. Christianity depends entirely on the historical person of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Paul could not have said that verse that we heard in our opening scripture from 1 Corinthians. Notice that Paul said, quote, For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless, unquote. The Apostle Paul stated very plainly that the Christian faith is all about Jesus. And while there is information about the Messiah in the Old Testament, that information is prophetic. The Old Testament anticipates the arrival of Jesus. But it is in the New Testament that we hear about that arrival. Therefore, since the New Testament is the primary source of information about the words and works of Christ, it is not accurate then that we do not possess a first-hand account of Jesus' claims, characters, and credentials. The historical integrity of the New Testament is crucial to Christian apologetics. Before we get too much into our discussion about why we can have confidence in the reliability of the New Testament, we should probably note that there are some people who believe that no history can be objectively known. Unfortunately, we live in a time when the past is often manipulated by the subjective desires of historians, writers, politicians, social change advocates, con artists, or others who have an agenda that's served by a revision of history. Political correctness doesn't just affect how contemporary issues are being framed. It also is being woven into all kinds of discussions of history. Pretty much everyone who's paying attention knows that. But political correctness is not what I'm talking about here. There's a strain of thought among some elites, especially academic elites, who believe that it's impossible for us to know anything true from or about history. But the kind of radical skepticism that would say that history is objectively unknowable eliminates the possibility of knowing anything at all about the past. As soon as we get anywhere close to such a radical belief, all university history and classical departments evaporate. There's no source about past events that can be trusted. Such skepticism would eliminate all historical science, such as anthropology, geology, paleontology, archaeology, and forensic science, because each of these depends on examining and interpreting remains of evidence from the past. Since everything not occurring now is history, such a belief system would eliminate all eyewitness testimony. Even living witnesses could only testify to what they saw at some point in time. But if this skepticism were true, their testimony would not be considered relevant, real, or accurate. On the other hand, if their testimony could be accepted while they are living, wouldn't also be true to say that the records they leave behind are just as credible as their testimony in the present time. And another question. Isn't a statement that says we can't objectively know history an attempt at establishing an absolute and objective truth about history? The statement that, quote, the past is not objectively knowable, unquote, is itself an objective statement about the past. Therefore, the position against the knowability of history is self-defeating. It fails the test of its own central premise. In effect, metaphorically speaking, the idea that we can't know anything true from or about history shoots itself in the head. So let's move on to talking about the reliability of the New Testament documents. 
As we've indicated, without a reliable New Testament, we have no objective historical way to know what Jesus said or did. We cannot establish whether Jesus was God, what Jesus taught, or what his followers did and taught. We must know if the sources or witnesses used by the authors were reliable, and we must show that the manuscripts were written early enough and with enough attention to detail to be accurate records of actual events. As we look at these questions, we will see that we have every reason to be confident in the accuracy of the New Testament. So, what you've proposed is that the first step in establishing the historical accuracy of the New Testament is to show that the documents were written by reliable eyewitnesses of the events or their contemporaries. And the second step you mentioned is to show that the New Testament documents have been accurately transmitted from the time of their original autographs. In other words, the original documents down from the time of their creation to our time. And contrary to what many critics believe or say, there's more evidence for the historical accuracy of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ than for any other event from the ancient world. These issues are a crucial part of the overall rational defense of Christianity. So let's start by looking at first one of the things we just mentioned, the dating of the New Testament manuscripts. One of the things we want to determine is whether they are early enough. In other words, were they prepared close enough in time to the events they tell us about to be reliable? Critics of the Bible and of Christianity would have better arguments if they are able to separate the actual facts from the records of those events by as much time as possible. If they can stretch out from the date of the event to when the event was first recorded, they can argue that the New Testament writers created the events rather than reported them. This then permits them to argue that the New Testament, especially the Gospels, more than likely contains myths. This is a common assertion among scholars. The longer the time between an event and the first record made about it, the more likely that embellishments will creep in. And another thing we want to determine is the question of authorship. Said differently, we want to be sure that the record writer was not too greatly removed from the event. Distance is not a problem if the writer was also an eyewitness of the event, but historical records are often prepared by people who were not eyewitnesses themselves. But we would still consider a record to be reliable if the writer spoke directly to an eyewitness or had direct access to supporting information such as records or artifacts that corroborated key details. So, let's take a look at some specifics at one of the most important books of the New Testament, that's the Book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts were both written by Luke. The person to whom they were written, Theophilus, the style and the vocabulary indicate that they were indeed written by the same person. The date and authenticity of the Acts of the Apostles is crucial to the historical account of early Christianity because if Acts was written before A.D. 70, then it has great historical value in informing us of the earliest Christian beliefs. A.D. 70 is a crucial date because that was when the famous Roman general and later emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem. When Titus destroyed Jerusalem, a great many Jews died and the rest were scattered. The nation of Israel disappeared in 70 A.D. and would not be restored for almost two millennia. It was ultimately reconstituted in 1948 by the Allies after World War II. So, if the Book of Acts was written before 70 A.D., 
there's a much better chance that Luke would have been able to speak to eyewitnesses when they were still alive. And the fact that Acts was written by Luke is also crucial. We know from Paul's letters that Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul during many of his ministry travels. Therefore, if Acts was written by Luke, it brings us right to the apostolic circle. In other words, this means Acts was written by someone who would have been a close companion to those who participated in the events reported, and Luke himself was likely an eyewitness to some of the events. In other words, we have the very closest relationship of the author to the historical report. Right. So that's one big point about the historicity of the book of Acts. The author would have had personal knowledge of the events he recorded, or he spoke to people who had personal knowledge. As to the question of when Acts was written, the traditional date assigned to the creation of Acts is 62 AD. This means it was written before the loss of many of the eyewitnesses from the destruction of Jerusalem. It also means it was written by a contemporary of Jesus himself because Jesus died in approximately 33 AD. One person who is assigned a date for the composition of Acts to no later than 62 AD is Roman historian Colin Hemer. Hemer cites a wide range of evidence for his view. For instance, there's no mention in the book of Acts of the fall of Jerusalem. This would be an extremely unlikely omission if the fall of Jerusalem had already occurred. Acts contains no hint of the outbreak of the Jewish war, which occurred in AD 66. Acts also does not mention the dramatic deterioration of relations between Romans and Jews, which preceded the war. This implies it was written before that time. Moreover, there's no hint of the deterioration of Christian relations with Rome, which was caused by Nero's persecution of the Christians in the late 60s. Hemer believes that Acts was most likely composed between 60 AD and 62 AD because of these and other factors. The other factors include the fact that there is no hint of the death of Jesus' half-brother James at the hands of the Sanhedrin. According to the famous Jewish historian Josephus in his book Antiquities, James was martyred in 62 AD. Had the martyrdom of James already occurred, it is extremely unlikely that Luke would have ignored an event that important to the early church. Also, the prominence and authority of the Jewish sect called the Sadducees, noted in Acts, belongs to the pre-700 AD era. This indicates that Acts was written before the collapse of the Sadducees' political cooperation with Rome. Yes. Also, Luke doesn't give any indication in the book of Acts that he's aware of Paul's letters, his epistles, to the various churches in Greece and Asia. In both his gospel and in Acts, Luke is very careful about getting particular details right. If Acts was written later in the first century, why wouldn't Luke have attempted to support his historical account by citing relevant sections of the epistles? The epistles evidently circulated through the churches and must have become available sources because they were passed along in every generation. This silence suggests that Acts was written early, during the apostolic era. Finally, the ending of the book of Acts does not continue Paul's story. It simply stops at the end of the two years described in Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. Those verses say, quote, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. 
So the fact that Acts just ends with a simple declaration of what Paul had been doing for the previous two years makes it look very much like Luke was just bringing his narrative up to date at that point. Remember that Luke tells us that he was writing both of the books attributed to him to a man named Theophilus in order for Theophilus to, quote, know the certainty of the things you have been taught, unquote. In his book, The Book of Acts, in the setting of Hellenistic history, Hemer says, It must be argued simply that Luke had brought the narrative up to date at the time of the writing, the final note being added at the conclusion of the two years. So all of these factors tell us that the date for the composition of the Book of Acts was quite likely not later than 62 AD and may have been even earlier. So, why have we spent so much time now focusing on demonstrating that the Book of Acts is a reliable record of history? How does this fit in our larger goal of establishing that the God that exists is the God of the Bible? Because if Acts is shown to be accurate history, then it brings credibility to its reports about the most basic Christian beliefs. For instance, the book of Acts contains accounts of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. It also contains the records of a number of miracles, and it gives us important contextual information that enables us to make better use of Paul's letters to the churches that are also important parts of the New Testament. Acts also contains significant details about Jerusalem, Rome, and many other geographic areas that have been extensively substantiated by historical and archaeological research. In other words, Acts is confirmed by overwhelming evidence. Nothing like this amount of detailed confirmation exists for any other book from antiquity. There is not only a direct confirmation of the earliest Christian belief in the death and resurrection of Christ, but also, indirectly, of the gospel record, since Luke also wrote a detailed gospel. The evidence that we have that validates Acts confirms not only the historical accuracy of the book of Acts, but also the reliability and validity of several other books of the New Testament. Exactly. Luke's gospel directly parallels the gospels of Mark and Matthew. As we've been talking about, the best evidence is that Acts was composed around A.D. 60, which places its composition only about 27 years after the traditional dating of the death of Jesus. This places the writing during the lifetime of eyewitnesses to the events recorded. And as we've mentioned, this enhances our confidence in the trustworthiness of what it reports. This dating of Acts does not allow time for any mythological development by persons living generations after the events. Furthermore, if Luke wrote Acts, then his former treatise, the Gospel of Luke, should be seen as written at an even earlier date, and therefore easily within the lifetime of apostles and eyewitnesses who could have refuted all or part of Luke's Gospel if he had gotten anything wrong. And as we've mentioned in other episodes of Anchored by Truth, we have to remember that all of the New Testament documents were being written in a world that was largely hostile to Christianity. The fact that Luke's records have survived with the content they did tells us that he was reporting the truth. So let's take a quick look at some of the other writings of Paul. It's widely accepted by critical and conservative scholars that 1 Corinthians was written by AD 55 or 56. This is only about a quarter century after the crucifixion. Further, in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of most of the 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection who were still alive when he wrote. This shows that there was a substantial body of people at the time that Paul wrote who could confirm the central fact of the Christian faith 
Christ's resurrection from the dead. Along with 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, all known to be early, all three reveal a historical interest in the events of Jesus' life and give facts that agree with the Gospels. Paul speaks of Jesus' virgin birth, Galatians 4.4. Sinless life, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Death on the cross, 1 Corinthians 15.3. Resurrection on the third day, 1 Corinthians 15.4. And post-resurrection appearances, 1 Corinthians 15.5-8. Paul also gives historical details about Jesus' contemporaries, the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15.5-8 including his private encounters with Peter and the Apostles, Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 2, verse 14. Critics of the New Testament sometimes claim that the New Testament was not written until almost 400 years after Jesus lived. But these critics are confusing the date that the New Testament documents were written with the time at which they were compiled into the form that we most commonly see them today. We have abundant evidence that the New Testament documents were all prepared well before the end of the first century A.D. For example, we know that many of the books of the New Testament were widely quoted by the early church fathers starting in the late first century A.D. Well, for the early church fathers to quote the documents, they had to have already been in wide circulation. For instance, of the four Gospels alone, there are 19,368 citations by the Church Fathers from the late 1st century on. This includes 268 by Justin Martyr, who lived from 100 A.D. until 165 A.D. There were 1,017 by Clement of Alexandria, who lived from approximately 155 A.D. to 220 A.D., and there were 3,822 by Tertullian, who lived around the same time. And even earlier, Clement of Rome cited Matthew, John, and 1 Corinthians in A.D. 95-97. Ignatius referred to six Pauline epistles in about 110 A.D. And about 110 and 150, Polycarp quoted from all four Gospels, Acts, and most of Paul's epistles. Papias, who was a companion of Polycarp, quoted from the Gospel of John. This is particularly significant because Polycarp knew John personally and was a disciple of the Apostle John. This argues powerfully that the Gospels were in existence before the end of the first century, while eyewitnesses, including the Apostle John, were still alive. Jose O'Callaghan, a Spanish Jesuit paleographer, made headlines around the world on March 18, 1972, when he identified a manuscript fragment from the Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran Cave 7, as a piece of the Gospel of Mark. Fragments from this cave had previously been dated between 50 BC and AD 50, which in 1972 was not typically thought of as being within the time frame for New Testament writings. Using the accepted methods of papyrology and paleography, O'Callaghan compared sequences of letters with existing documents and eventually identified nine fragments as belonging to one gospel, Acts, and a few epistles. Some of these were dated slightly later than 50, but still extremely early. Both friends and critics agreed that, if valid, O'Callaghan's conclusions revolutionized New Testament theories. If O'Callaghan is correct, the implications for Christian apologetics are enormous. The Gospel of Mark must have been written within the lifetimes of the apostles and contemporaries of the events. This completely eliminates any time for mythological embellishment of the record. 
It must be accepted as historical. And since the manuscripts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls are not originals, but copies, the originals would have necessarily been written earlier. This means these parts of the New Testament would have certainly been copied and disseminated during the lives of the writers. These early dates do not allow time for myths or legends to creep into the stories about Jesus. Historians generally agree legend development takes at least two full generations. Even putting aside O'Callaghan's claims, the cumulative evidence places the New Testament documents within the first century and the lives of eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and resurrection. There's a growing acceptance of early New Testament dates, even among some critical scholars. Let's take a quick look at two of them to illustrate this point. Former liberal archaeologist William F. Albright and radical critic John A.T. Robinson. Albright wrote, quote, We can already say emphatically that there is no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after about A.D. 80, two full generations before the date between 130 and 150 given by the more radical New Testament critics of today, unquote. Elsewhere, Albright said, quote, In my opinion, every book of the New Testament was written by a baptized Jew between the 40s and the 80s of the first century, very probably sometime between about 80, 50, and 75, unquote. Known for his role in launching the Death of God movement, Robinson wrote a revolutionary book entitled Redating the New Testament. In it, he determined that the New Testament books should be dated even earlier than even the most conservative scholars ever believed. Robinson places Matthew at AD 40-60, Mark at about 45-60, Luke at or before 57-60, and John at 40-65. This would mean that one or two Gospels could have been written as early as seven to ten years after the crucifixion. At the latest, they were all composed within the lifetimes of eyewitnesses and contemporaries of the events who could have refuted any parts of the accounts had they been in error. In short, we have very strong evidence that the New Testament documents were written very close to the time of the events they record. We know they were composed by either eyewitnesses to the events or the authors had direct access to the eyewitnesses. And we have so many quotations from the original documents in the writings of the early church fathers, we can be very sure that the transmission of the original text was reliable. This sounds like a great time to go to God in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our country. A prayer for the nation. Almighty and sovereign Father, You are the one true and perfect ruler of all that is and all that ever will be. Lord, we come to you today to pray for our nation. In our Pledge of Allegiance, we pledge that this is one nation under God. May it truly be so. May our people recognize that we owe our existence to you and that you are the rightful master of this nation and indeed all creation. We pray, Lord, that this nation might find favor in your sight as we turn and look to you. We know that there is much about our nation and people today that does not please you and does not conform to your will. Forgive us for this, mighty Lord. We have too often lost sight that we will all be held accountable to you, and this has led to foolish pride and unwise presumption. 
bring us to a renewed sense of your holiness and justice. Help us to humble ourselves so that we may begin again to walk straight paths as we depend on you. Lord, there are many other nations and groups in this world that would seek our harm and even our devastation. Even now, many conspire against us. We pray that you would not allow them to succeed. Do not let our stumbles become an occasion for their joy. We pray that you would confound them in their efforts to cause us harm and injury. We do not ask this on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of your mercy. Do not let them become proud by granting them a victory as we struggle for restoration. Lord, give wisdom and instruction to our leaders at all levels, both civilian and military. Turn their hearts to you and bring them into direct contact with your transforming character. Remind them that they are your stewards and that all their authority comes only from you. Let the name of your Son be lifted up in our hearts as we rejoice in the restoration and salvation he brought. We glory and hope in his name, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not perfect, but our boss is.